Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and uh, Lord, that uh, you have revealed yourself there, and uh, Lord, that we can uh, trust it, Lord, that it has been uh, handed down uh, by eyewitnesses uh, of your resurrection, and uh, Lord, I pray that uh, it would uh, do more than just inform us, uh, but Lord, that it would change us, even if it's imperceptible, even if we can't hardly tell the difference of who we were when we came in and who we are when we leave, Lord, we trust that your word always has its effect. And so have that effect even now. In Christ's name, amen. We've been in First John the last several weeks. Uh, last week, we took a little bit of a detour uh, to talk about worldliness when we've been uh, talking about tests of assurance. Uh, we had two before that. We've got the last one is today. And it's because uh, John wants us to know that we're really Christians. It's possible that you really can know that you're a Christian. It's really important. We've given the illustration of uh, of breaks, that uh, not knowing if you're a Christian or not having lots of doubt is like living your life uh, with the brakes on. And uh, John doesn't want that for us. Jesus doesn't want that for us. And the first two tests were about obedience to God, and the second one was about love for others. And today the test is about doctrine. And if we pass these tests, then we can have this assurance. And some people would say that assurance leads, leads, inevitably leads to arrogance. Doubt seems like the humble path, but let me tell you why it's not arrogant to know that you're a Christian. I mean, would you say it's arrogant to know that you're an American? Probably not. I mean, being an American or being a citizen of any nation it is a matter of standing. Either you are or you aren't. You either have the rights of being a citizen of the nation or you don't. There's no in-between. You can't be a half-citizen. Yet many of us, we view our faith that way, don't we? And we think, all right, I'm 36% doubtful and 64% assured. Or I'm having, uh, I'm having a really good day and I'm just 1% doubtful and 99% assured. Or I'm 99% doubtful and 1% assured. And John is trying to tell us that this kind of introspection is mostly a fool's errand. I mean, he's a straight shooter. He he puts things in stark contrast in several ways in the the letter. He uses light and darkness. He uses love and hate. And then today he uses truth and lies. So let's read our passage together. 1 John chapter 2, we'll read verses 18 to 27. Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard... That Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are not all of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you, not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it. And because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? And this is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. 
I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you received from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything, and is true, and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. The word of the Lord. There's really two sections in this passage. He outlines a thread in verses 18 through 23. And then in verses 24 through 27, he gives us safeguards to that threat. So let's begin with a threat. He starts off the passage in verse 18. And John, the apostle, remember, he's an older man. And so he's addressing his church, his probably multiple congregations. And he calls them children. And he does so because he has this affectionate regard for them. But he also does it because he's the senior in faith to them. He's setting, himself, he's setting himself up to show how he's protecting them lovingly. He's not just some dictator, just an authority, but he's also not a mushy pushover. He's not just affection. He's their older, wiser pastor, and he wants to protect them from a group of people that he calls Antichrists in verse 18. Did you catch that? And then in verse 22, he gives them another name. He calls them liars. When's the last time someone called you an antichrist? When's the last time somebody called you a liar? When's the last time you used that on somebody else? I mean, I I think of Clark Griswold, you know, the National Lampoons, and that's at the end, and he's all ticked off at his boss, and he calls him every name under the sun, but he doesn't call him an antichrist, you know? And so to call someone an antichrist is really pulling a heavy stick, right? Right? But who are these people? Well, look at verse 19. John says, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. So you see these antichrists were? You've been around the church for a long time. Sometimes you think that the antichrist is some big political power. But that's not necessarily true here in verse 19. The Antichrist were former church members. The Antichrist were people that John's church knew their names. They celebrated their birthdays with one another. They'd been in each other's homes, and now John calls them Antichrists. So how could the same person play both roles, both friend and Antichrist? Well, think about it. I mean, if you were Satan and you wanted to destroy a church, what would you do? I mean, you could bring pagan armies in to try to kill all the Christians, but that wouldn't work. I mean, what would happen is that you'd just fire up the existing Christians. I mean, you guys saw in Russia this week, uh, Alexei, I'm not going to say this right, Navalny, this is my close. Uh, Did you guys see this? You know, so he's been in prison for a long time. He's been standing up to the Russian government for a long, long time. And now he somehow mysteriously died at the age of 47. And now there's all these protests at the Kremlin in Moscow. So this just fired people up. Well, that's what would happen if you had a bunch of Christians die. The existing Christians would get all fired up. And there's this famous quote that, that reads, that, that says that the blood of martyrs is the seed of the church. Satan knows that. So Satan has another scheme. He wants to poison the church, not from without, but from within. And that's what he does here. You've got some people in the church who get a hold of some dangerous ideas that they end up believing, and then they try to spread those ideas to the rest of the church. And this is what Satan always does. 
A church's biggest danger aren't those out there. A church's biggest dangers are those in here. And in John's case, he could tell they were Antichrist because of what they taught, but he could also tell they were Antichrist by the fact that they left. So, does leaving a church always make you an Antichrist? <laughs> it's a fair question, right? Well, I mean, think about church history. You have Martin Luther. He left the Catholic Church when it became widely corrupt, and he started the Reformation. It would be a good thing to leave a church that's actively trying to cover up abuse. So there's good reasons to leave a church. But have you ever noticed the opposite? Have you ever noticed that every cult has been started by those who are disgruntled with their church or their denomination? They left to form what they call the true church. They think everybody got it wrong who came before them and that God spoke to them personally. But what would they be better off doing? They'd be better off just wrestling with their discontentment, receiving the counsel of godly friends and leaders and make a faith-filled decision about what to do. But here's what get, things get tricky. Things get tricky because these people that John is calling antichrists here, I'm pretty sure that on their personal information questionnaire, it said their religious preference, I'm pretty sure that they would check Christian. I'm pretty sure that they would self-identify as a Christian. They wouldn't self-identify as an atheist or a Jew or a pagan, and certainly not as an antichrist. But make no doubt about it. These false teachers are clearly not Christians. And if they're not, then that means in John's church and ours by extension contains two kinds of people, Christians and non-Christians. And a lot of times they look a lot alike. So how do you know the difference? Well, you can't t- tell based on their denominational affiliation. You can't tell by how much money they give. You, you can't tell by whether they've been debaptized. One way you can tell, though, is by what they believe about Jesus. Look at verses 22 and 23. It says, Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Father has No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. So do you see the Antichrist problem? The Antichrist problem is a doctrinal problem. They believed and then taught, according to verse 26, that Jesus was born and died a man. That's true. It's likely they believe that he received some kind of divine influx at his baptism and that influx left him on the cross. He was a mere man, and for a brief time he had divine powers, but they denied that Jesus was both a human being and the eternal Son of God in the same person. That's an important thing to believe, because if God didn't come to us as a human being in Jesus, then we're all sunk. Why are we all sunk? Because we can't get to God, which leaves us dead in our sin. That's why he had to come to us in a person. So if you take out this belief about the nature of Jesus, then what is Christianity really all about at that point? Well, it's not about Jesus anymore. It's about you. It's about being a good person. When you make a religion about just being a good person, it becomes a very exclusive religion. 
Because only good people can get in. And that means that I'm out. I mean, I know in my heart that I do things that I'm ashamed of. I think things that are abominable. There are good things I don't do for no other reason than just sheer selfishness. And you know what? (laughs) I think you're the same way. So you're right to make a claim that Christianity is exclusive because you have to believe certain things. But you know what? I'll take that exclusivity over the exclusivity of being a good person all day because bad people can get in Christianity. Christianity can look at bad people and marginal people and can offer hope to them. I mean, just look at Jesus' genealogy in Matthew chapter 1. If you look at it, what do you have in there? You've got men and women. You've got moral failures, lots of them, in Jesus' genealogy. You've got Jews and non-Jews in Jesus' genealogy. There's all kinds of people that are part of Jesus' exclusive family, and the way they get in is through faith. Through faith is that Jesus is who he said he is. So what form of exclusivity do you want? Do you want one that's about doctrine and the person of Jesus, or do you want one that's about morality? It raises another question this passage does, doesn't it? How do you know what to do with people you disagree with about theological things? Let me tell you, when you have, um, when you've been to seminary, which is what pastors a lot of times have been to, it's what I've been to, it's just what people want to talk to you about. And it's so annoying most of the time, you know? People just think, like, I just like sitting around and debating. And it's like, I really don't love doing that. But maybe you're in that situation where you have people you disagree with about theological things. Well, let me give, we'll give you a couple tips. The first one, determine the doctrine's centrality. See, John is not calling people antichrist on some secondary issue. This is a core issue on which our salvation stands. He's coming in hot because it's a core issue. So that means if your theological issue is not a core issue, then you should be more open to dialogue. <laughs> If you disagree with someone about issues that have to do with baptism or predestination or church government forms or end times convictions, they probably aren't antichrists. Engaging in this kind of dialogue, in fact, it can offer help to you because you help you see your blind spots. It can help you see that what you really have unity on from people that you have different theological traditions or different cultures. It can help you be more well-rounded when you're willing to enter this kind of dialogue. However, that doesn't dismiss the reality that there are today some troubling theological developments in the Christian church in America. For instance, I have met and I know people who call themselves Christians who doubt the physical, historical resurrection of Jesus. I have met and know people who call themselves Christians who believe there's more than one way to Jesus. But both of these strike at the very heart of the Christian faith. Those are core theological convictions. So determine its centrality. The second thing I would say is exhort 
with tears in person. If you find yourself in close association with someone who's out of sync on a core doctrine, exhort them with tears. It should break your heart. If it doesn't break your heart and you're initiating a confrontational conversation, you could come in at them with pride. And you've got to do the heart work to do. You have heart work to do before you have this tenuous, necessary conversation. So exhort with tears and do so in person. This isn't something you do via text. This isn't something you do on social media. This is something you do in person, because if you don't do it in person, they can't see your tears. So do you see the threat? Well, John doesn't leave us hanging. He gives us safeguards. He gives us two. In verses 24 to 27, the first is objective, the second one is subjective. I know those are kind of big words, but let me break them down. Objective means that the, that, that the support is verifiable and it's based on facts and evidence. The subjective means that the support's based on your feelings and opinions and emotions. So, for instance, you take a lemon pie, right? A lemon pie is made out of lemons. That's objective, all right? I can make a different kind of statement. I could say, I like lemon pie. That's subjective. And John gives us an objective and subjective safeguard. Look at verse 24. In verse 24, he says, let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If you remember back the very beginning of the letter, what you heard is what John saw and touched in Jesus. So it's an objective message. It's the gospel message. It's news. It's historical. I mean, Jesus came on a day on a calendar. Jesus lived for 33 years. He, his body uh, died on a cross. His body was raised from the dead and it was seen by 500 plus eyewitnesses. That's objective. But John takes it a step further in verse 27 and he talks about the anointing you received. And by anointing, he's talking about the Holy Spirit. That's subjective. The safeguard of the gospels about facts, the receiving of the Holy Spirit is about experience. And usually you're one kind of person or the other. If you're an objective person, you love to learn. You like to read books. That's your jam. You like taking classes. So this whole thing of let what you heard, that safeguard, you're all in on that one. But if people start talking about experience, you start getting nervous, right? It could be the opposite way. You're all about the feels. Receiving the Holy Spirit. I came to church and I, and I felt God today. You know, not a lot of Presbyterians like that, by the way. <laughs> but John gives us both because they work in tandem. I mean, you've got to have balance, especially in the face of doctrinal error. See, the anointing of the Spirit illumines the old truths of the gospel in fresh and personal specific ways. The Spirit opens our eyes to Jesus as our defender, our king, our friend, our savior. He makes Jesus big. That's what the Spirit does. But the gospel and the Spirit, they don't automatically preserve you. They don't automatically dispel the lies. You've got to do more than just accept them both. You've got to interact with them. 
And that's why John uses the same word with each safeguard. Do you see it in verse 24 and then verse 27? Do you see the verb? The verb's abide. Abiding in the truth of the gospel that you've heard and abiding in the anointing you received in the Holy Spirit means that you let them control your thinking and control your actions. And when you do abide, these lies are dispelled and you're preserved. I don't know about you, but when I read this passage uh, a couple months ago and I was just reading through the book, like, all right, I'm going to preach First John. I should probably read through it in one sitting a few times. I was like, man, I'm not looking forward to this one. And after looking at it the last several days, uh, it really scared me. It scared me on one level because I'm a teacher, right? I mean, I'm not the apostle. like the, I'm not an apostle like John is. But I have been call, called by God to play a unique role as a teacher, which means that I'm laying out the doctrines of the Christian faith from this pulpit week in and week out, and I want to be faithful to that call. I really don't want to teach you lies. And I certainly don't want to be an antichrist. But I'm capable of it. And I need to abide. But it also scared me as a shepherd. Think about it. I mean, heresy is considered a dirty word. No one wants to be considered a heresy hunter. No one wants to be known as being narrow-minded. No one wants to be known as a bigot. But we're going to need to call teaching out that is out of line with the gospel and call it what it is. It's a lie. And I'm afraid that we won't. I'm afraid we'll say things like, you have a right to your opinion. You have a different perspective on the truth. That will minimize the importance of doctrine and will act like all that matters is what we do or how we feel. But brother and sister, we've got to protect each other from a faulty view of truth. Truth is not something that you construct. Truth exists apart from you and from me, and it critiques us and it forms us. It's a reality as much as anything in the physical world. So I was afraid. I've been afraid all week, yet for all my fear, Jesus comforted me. He said they won't let us go. That I can trust him, that if I veer off as a teacher, he's going to bring me back. I can trust that those who I care for deeply as their pastor and their shepherd, that no matter how much they doubt or slip into false doctrines, that he's going to bring them back. So he gave me some verses. And these verses comforted me. One was John 6, 39. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose, this is Jesus talking, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me. John 10, 28, I, gave, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. 2 Timothy 1, 12, but I, this is Paul talking, he says, but I am not ashamed for I know whom I have believed and I am convinced that he is able to, to guard until that day what has been entrusted to him. 2 Timothy 4, 18, the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and brings me safely into his heavenly kingdom. Romans 8, for I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything in all creation 
will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So you put all these promises together and here's what you have. Jesus loses no one whom the Father gives him. That Jesus guards those who've been entrusted to him. That Jesus rescues those from evil and brings us into his heavenly kingdom. And that nothing can separate us from his love. Therefore, brother and sister, abide in the spirit, abide in the gospel, and ultimately you are safe in the loving grips of your Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these promises. We would try to wiggle out of your hand. Others would try to get us out of your hand. But we thank you that you're stronger than we are and that you're stronger than all our enemies. And Lord, we can be held by you. So Lord, I pray you would help us remain faithful to believe what is true. We pray this in your name. Amen.